You opted for the Sprite tonight. You're usually recording with a beer, but you're keeping it non-alcoholic today. I had the beer at dinner. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. You did. This is the first time a glass of wine has come into Studio G. So more more than not being a little tipsy by the end of this thing, by the time we get to the fourth <laughs> movement, I'm concerned about spilling it on this carpet here. So my question <laughs> so I'm gonna is, be careful. <laughs> on the beers, my question is, why did you go from the 12 ounces to the pounders? Are you trying to, are you trying to coax something out Honest, of me that you're not getting? Honest, honestly, I prefer the short can beers in the fridge, uh-huh. uh, but they they don't always have them at the store. So when it comes to the cheap beer, I'm on an entrepreneur's budget. So when it right. comes to the cheap beer, I got to get what they got. Sometimes they have the tall boy hams. I'm not complaining about a tall <laughs> Sometimes boy. Sometimes they don't. I'm more concerned about whether or not you're trying to get something out of me you're not getting. Oh, and you think you're going to ply me with alcohol. Oh, I don't, I don't think I need the alcohol for that. But <laughs> I'm enough of a sociopath to get to get to get what I need from you. Otherwise, you said it. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome everyone uh, for this week's down. We're, we're laughing, but this week's downbeat is on a on a sort of somber note. We're offering uh, a rest in power and a rest in peace to the late Stephen Sondheim. Talk to me, you know, briefly about your relationship with the work of Sondheim as a theater person as a as a former theater professional did your life did your uh, career as a as a, a theater performer intersect much with the works of Stephen Sondheim not at all I really was, not I've, at all I've never been in a musical that's not my taste uh, I respect it as a form of expression but I can tell you that kind of like opera arias you know you can say oh I like this one I like this one and this one's my favorite uh, everything that I do like about musicals, he wrote. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if that says anything. I had heard the name and when people were talking about all oh, rest in peace of Stephen Sondheim, I had to look up some of the places where, you know, my career intersected with his work. And the biggest place, I guess, for a lot of people is being the librettist mm-hmm. for a West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, but before we listen to this little clip, I have a, a clip from a Stephen Sondheim interview, but there, there's some lyrics, even in West Side Story, this very well-known musical that's still kind of uh, pull at my heartstrings uh, specifically. It's been years since I've had to perform it or anything, but I'm thinking about Tony when he's singing, you know, uh, when you say the, uh, the, in the song Maria, when you say the name Maria loudly, or uh, it's like singing. When you say it softly, it's like praying or whatever mm. he sings. And that's a man that was really in love with a woman named Maria, mm. you know? So just to write those lyrics, it's, it, it's, it's, it's good. It, it, it pulls at the heartstrings for me. Um, there are many incredible tunes in, uh, uh, the the musical West Side Story and Stephen Sondheim actually speaks to another one of those songs in this uh, excerpt from a sixty Minutes interview. There's a tune in there about uh, Officer Crump, right? Uh, I forget the title of the Crump. Fix me, help me. No, I think you're right. <laughs> okay, yeah. If 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 y'all are bigger fans of of the theater and know more than me, send me the email. It's fine. But uh, he. he uh, in, in this interview excerpt, Sondheim is talking about how he wanted to be the first person to write a four-letter word for a Broadway production. And he originally wrote a four-letter word for the end of one of his West Side Story tunes and ended up having to change it. Anyway, let's hear him talk about it a little bit. In those days, there was no such thing as a four-letter word on the stage. Yeah. And I wanted to be the first guy to have a four-letter word on the stage in a musical. There had been one... Uh, one one uh, 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 in Cat in the Hat Tin Roof was the first time any four-letter word had been used in a commercial 
show. What'd they say? I'm, am I allowed to say it here? Yeah. yeah Burl Ive said, bullshit. The entire audience exploded. They ran for the exits. People cowered. And so I want to be the first person in a musical. So the last line of G. Oscar Kropke was, G. Oscar Kropke, f*** you. <laughs> and we played it for the head of Columbia Records. And he said, that's very effective, Steve. However, it means we can't ship the record out of the state. So if you just want to sell records in New York City, use you. If you want it anyplace else, change it. Crumb, crumb key, I guess it is. Officer mm. Crumb key. Um, you know, first of all, Stephen Sondheim was putting fuck the police on the Broadway stage. He tried. Right. He did his best. Right. <laughs> but ended up having to change it. What do you think about uh, the the idea of the power of those so-called four-letter words, these so-called swear words in the arts, on the stage. has Was that ever a conversation in your theater-ing, the use of profanity, swear words, whatever, from the stage in a production? At the Shelter Belt Theater, where I was a co-founder, we put no parameters. So anything could be said. Yeah, we, we had some uh, very strange productions on stage. We had cutting edge things that we were picketed for right we we put no yoke on anybody yeah when i when i was in high school i was in a, a two-person play called sure thing i'm, I'm gonna because annabelle is a part of the play for folks who know it there's a, a rant that uh the the male lead goes on where he's uh using the b word and that this that blah blah the the English teacher that I was working under in high school just rewrote those lines. <laughs> he did. He didn't yeah. want us saying all that. And I don't know if I've. In, I remember in the audition I had to say the b word. And as an eleventh grade, I think I was an eleventh grade. As an eleventh grader, I didn't feel right about that word. And I I really don't even use it today. I I, I try not to. But uh, but but you know, I, I think that's an interesting conversation and a interesting bit of history to to hear when it comes to Stephen Sondheim. Admit it though, the first time anything major like that happens, it's it's a bombshell, right? Mm-hmm. So if he would have used that, that would be tame by today's standards. Oh yeah. And I'm sure there's plenty of four letter whatever's coming from Broadway stage and whatever, but he wanted to be the first one. But yeah. the the issue of holding it back was at the end of the day, marketing, the money are of you it be all. Able to sell it. Yeah. What 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 are your ideas on artistic or musical censorship? Is there still a purpose? Is it inappropriate to hear a a so called swear word in a uh, on a classical a so called classical radio program or a concert or or anything like that? If, and and if so, what are the parameters? Is damn you know, too much of, of a word. There, there's music, uh, uh, the, the one piece I'm thinking of in particular, of uh, a, a Philip Glass opera where the word damn is used in one of the arias. The first time I aired it, I thought about whether or not I should do that or not. I don't know. But to, again, but as you say, by today's standards, a lot of this stuff is tame. It, it, it doesn't even matter. So is, is there still space for these conversations? Should we still be censoring so-called four-letter words in the arts that Stephen Sondheim was forced to back when? Interesting. Um, I, I think that for broadcast, we still need to follow some uh, conventions. You know, Let's unpack it. Why? Well, why should we? Because we have to think about the impact that it's going to have on the younger set. And uh, I believe that there was a, 
I'm, I have to go back to my grad school days and I don't want to go that, back that far, but uh, you know, certain words were used only after a certain hour. Right. You know, right, so you have right. a, a bigger chance at hitting an adult audience. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I think it's responsible to keep vulgarity to a minimum when younger people might be around. But I think you're already starting to see it in broadcast uh, news, cable news, because um, I'm hearing their anchors say shit. Yeah. Full on. I don't know how much they're paying. And when they play excerpts from court, I have heard the N-word get out plenty. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, if it's going to happen anyway, I guess it's going to be in our court systems right. here in America. But uh, So I, I think you're already going to see some of that. The kid angle... I get and understand to a certain degree, eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds have TikTok and it's all kind of stuff going on on there. Yeah, but, I, but I maybe, just don't think that that needs to add to it. Well, well, and also maybe the public radio families are a little bit more tame than the than than how I maybe, grew up. Maybe. <laughs> uh, where do you draw the line personally? Would you say the word damn? On broadcast I have, radio, I have. Oh, what do. was what? Well, what did you say? You were like, I don't give a damn about Beethoven. Or you say, or you were quoting someone? No, I said, oh, he, you know, he went with it. He didn't give a damn. <laughs> he said, told him to go to hell. I, love I that. get emails. Yeah, they're, they're like, how dare you say you you did the hook 'em horns one time in some visual promo we did for Triloquy, and one of the radio folks was emailing you then, weren't they? Yeah. So you don't even have to say a curse word to mm -hmm. offend someone. No, you can't even be ironic. Yeah, well, for folks who are who have never been here listening to the Triloquy podcast before. We say a lot of the words, not all of them, <laughs> not all of them, because even I have limits. But <laughs> I, I would say, Officer Crumkey, fuck you. I don't, I don't, I don't mind that, especially the, considering that this is a police character. If you're so. playing, <laughs> if you're playing Triloquy Bingo, any swear word from me is like one of the the rarities. <laughs> well, yeah, anyway. one of the hard squares to get. Rest in peace, rest in power to Stephen Sondheim. If it were up to me, I would have let them say, uh, "Officer Crumkey, fuck you." because I don't center the marketing of it and all of that. But West Side Story ended up being a hit anyway, sure. didn't it? So rest in power to Stephen Sondheim. Welcome everyone to Opus 127. We're going to be cussing probably, probably. This isn't, this is not a safer work podcast. But not in the first so. 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, well, we already did it. But anyway, <laughs> let's get started. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 127, I believe. Yeah, 127. Thank you, everyone, for being here. To returning listeners, your continued support is so appreciated. Thank you so much for continuing to keep our numbers up and making sure Triloquy remains a vital part of the musical ecosystem and everything that's happening within it. We really, really, really appreciate your support. To new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that takes classical music and takes it out of the ivory tower that it's always existed in. We take the phrase, the concepts, the people, and the conversations surrounding Western classical music, so-called classical music, and present it in a way that's closer to the ground and closer to contemporary culture 
closer to anti-racism and closer to everything that we care about in our day-to-day lives. For more information on the Triloquy podcast and to find out how you can donate, visit Triloquy.org. My tongue is feeling a little heavy from this wine. I might have to wait till we're done. But <laughs> but thank you to returning and new listeners. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information on the Shuttleworth Foundation can be found at shuttleworthfoundation.org. Support also comes from the Springboard for the Arts. The Springboard for the Arts mission is to support artists with the tools to make a living and a life and to build just and equitable communities full of meaning, joy, and connection. A huge shout out and thank you to the Springboard for the Arts for their very general, uh, generous support. For more information on them, visit springboardforthearts.org. In addition, support comes from Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra. Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra of Chicago present Black Messiah, the album release event. Uh, Black Messiah retells the story of the birth of Christ from a black narrative perspective that happens this Friday, December 3rd. Tickets and more information can be found online at adriandunn.com. And finally, I want to send a huge thank you to Opera Next Gen for their generous support. Join Opera Next Gen for Night Trip, a gripping new one-act opera from composer Carlos Simon and librettist Sandra Seton. Carlos Simon has been on Triloquy, by the way, so shout out to Carlos Simon and shout out to librettist Sandra Seton. We love our black woman librettists out here in the field. Originally commissioned by Washington National Opera, Night Trip follows a young black girl as she joins her World War II veteran uncles on a road trip to visit family. She is soon faced with a new reality as her dreams collide with harsh truths that will change the way she sees the world. This one night only performance of Night Trip will be streamed live and online on Saturday, December 11th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Learn more and get your tickets at operanextgen.org slash night trip. That's opera, N-E-X-G-E-N dot O-R-G slash night trip. Thank you so much to all of the supporters. And I hope everyone will go and support all of the incredible artistic work that's happening by these grassroots and mid roots organizations. If you would like to be a supporter of Triloquy again, visit Triloquy.org and you can find out how just click the contact button and you'll send an email directly to me. And it goes to the inbox that I read every day, not the regular inbox. You're a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Anyway, thank you everyone. Let's get into movement one. Scott, you came over on uh, last Thursday morning, so-called Thanksgiving morning. I'm still in my pajamas and my comfy sweater having a um, a mimosa with the uh, sherbet. It's yep. not, I grew up saying sherbet. Me too. But, but Dell is just trying to correct me and say sherbet. But I, I, I grew up saying sherbet. What did they say on uh, Coming to America? His mama called it sherbet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call this Sherbert. I will die on that hill. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Don't be anti-black. Let us say Sherbert. Anyway, I was. you came over here. I was uh, watching this and you talked about how the Macy's Day Parade was never really a thing for you growing up. No, even, even when I was, you know, eight or nine years old, I was watching it thinking, all right, let's wrap it up. This is this is <laughs> you're giving it a flat way back then. <laughs> well, for me, it's just kind of a part of the tradition. I don't do 
Thanksgiving Day things because I, I just don't like that. I talked about it last week. I'm uncomfortable. Right. But I, I what I do love is getting up and being cozy, actually taking a day off, especially these days in my entrepreneurial space. That's when I can just say, look, everybody, no one else is checking email. So I'm not either. You know, so I, I love that feeling. Watching the Macy's Day Parade is my way of giving in to the holiday season the holiday spirit because y'all will start before october with that christmas before halloween with that uh christmas music and i reject it but you can't reject it on you know following the macy's day parade so that's that's when i just you have to be a hardcore brit (laughs) right right (laughs) uh one reason in particular that i really wanted to make sure i watched this year is because last year's parade was just sad it was just kind of depressing. And we were everybody was a sad everything. I mean, COVID was still scary back then because it's not like COVID is gone. <laughs> Actually, it's evolved, <laughs> yeah, mutated, but, but it's not scary anymore. So we're doing our outdoor things or whatever. So I, I really enjoyed actually seeing uh, the Rockettes, for example, because they didn't really do anything at the parade last year. They performed, but they were in full costume. I'm sure there were some non Rockettes. In, in the mix right. because like it was full uh, wooden soldier costumes I think anyway they were back we had the uh, the marching bands which we didn't have last year which I uh, thought was uh, of note you know because when I think of a parade I think of marching bands especially all of those cold cold, cold probably not that cold down in Tennessee uh, on those marching uh, parades especially those Christmas parades mm-hmm. I remember being freezing but it was probably a good solid 47 degrees and I'm just acting like it's cold out here <laughs> Anyway, uh, great to see the uh, musical performances. I wanted to give the uh, Macy's Day Parade a really quick sharp because I appreciated the bands, uh, two in particular. Before I talk about the bands that uh, I appreciated, I just have to say to all of the, the high school band directors who raise the money, who have the parent booster clubs and the fundraisers, you know, all of those things to get your bands to the Macy's Day Parade. I know for a lot of uh, bands and band programs, that's a big deal. Yeah. You need to pick some music that we care about. So many of these bands will play these classic show tunes and things. And I get it. It's New York. That's fun. Most of the people watching this parade from home are not living in New York and just want to hear something that's going to keep our mimosa mood going, at least for me. (laughs) So, you know, I'm not going to call out any bands in particular, but if you are connected to a band program that's working on the Macy's Day Parade for next year or the following year, I I worked for a band uh, years ago that went and it was a few years years in advance when they found out and everything so maybe okay. so maybe not next year but if, if 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 you're trying to get into the parade for 2025 or something think again about that musical selection you have and and, and try to find something that decolonizes marching band do you, <laughs> do you have to know three years in advance what you're going to play i think they need to know i, I think they want to know Wow. Your numbers. And because, you know, there's a part of the production is going in front of Macy's and doing your little mini performance and then continuing on with the parade and all those sorts of things. So just a just a quick PSA to all the band people. You are allowed to showcase to platform some music that we know and that we care about. Hell, maybe music that was written in the 21st century at these at these parades. Imagine that, you know, some (laughs) some music that was written in the past 21, 22 years. Anyway. 
So all of that to say there were a couple bands that I really appreciated. I always love seeing the HBCUs in performance. Um, and at this year's Macy's Day Parade, uh, the band from Hampton University was there. They did this uh, sort of celebration set, you know, the celebrate nice. and, and all that uh, sort of thing. Um, so it was great to hear from them. But the band that I wanted to highlight um, as I give a sharp to the Macy's Day Parade is the Ann Richards School for Young Women Leaders Band. So you have a whole school, a whole high school that is women, like girls, you know, a, a girls high school. And this girls high school has a band with tuba players and trombone players and everything. And, I, and I'm not trying to be uh, sexist or old school here, but I'm still old enough where, you know, when I went to, when I signed up for band and told, uh, what's the name? I'm not going to shout out his name because this is problematic. Said that I wanted to play the flute. He said, that's a girl instrument. So, <laughs> and that's how bassoon happens. Right. So, right. And I ended up playing the flute anyway. Uh, but I just love that as we move forward in society, we talk about anti-racism, we talk about about breaking down the patriarchy. It moves me. I love that there are young girls who are getting an incredible start and being surrounded by um, girl classmates, having women teachers and, and mentors, and really understanding in an applicable way, in an active way, the importance of women only spaces and, and, and girl only spaces. I think that's cool. And then on top of that, to have a marching band, your girls' high school has a marching band. It's dope. I mm. was, I was, I was sitting in front of my TV, so proud. So shout out to um, everyone over at the Ann Richards School for Young Women Leaders. Shout out to their band directors and all of the band members. I enjoyed hearing from y'all at the Macy's Day Parade. What was your favorite balloon? Did they call them balloon? What was your favorite float? Oh, float, float. Hmm, that's a good. Name. Um, so here in Minnesota was the first time I had heard of Sinclair, you know, the gas station. And mm -hmm. so as far as retro balloons, they have the old Sinclair dinosaur float, which I thought was cool. And seeing that float makes me think about the Macy's Day Parade and, you know, 1960, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, when they, mm -hmm. when, when they weren't letting the Negroes in, I guess, but, <laughs> uh, but I also, <laughs> I also enjoyed, um, there was a, a, do you know who Goku is? Yeah, from Dragon Ball. Yeah, sure. okay, so there was a, <laughs> I'm just testing you, there's a, a Goku float that I thought was uh, real fun. No float catastrophes this year, you know. Uh, there was that one year where Barney just came apart in the middle of the parade. And then if you're the handler, what do you do? You just continue to walk and wave or what? <laughs> I don't know. But just uh, FYI, I bought Dragon Ball cards in Japan in 1991. So, oh, yeah, oh. I know who Goku is. Oh, well, well, very good. Yokata, as they would say in, in, in Japan. Um, so anyway, shout out, shout out to everyone uh, at the parade, everyone who enjoyed the parade. I just wanted to give it a little room because that's how I spent some of my time off this past week looking at the parade. Here's uh, a, a bit of the performance by the Ann Richards Marching Stars. They're uh, based down in um, Austin, Texas, I should mention. Here's a bit of them as performed at the Macy's Day Parade.
I want to know the vibe of an all-girl, an all-woman drum line, especially the snare line, because if anybody in the marching band world is problematic, it's the drummers, period, period. <laughs> all those boys, all those men are are in the way and problematic. So I, w- I would love to know what, what what the vibe of a of a woman-led drum line is like. That must be fun. And I would love to know who did the mix on that recording, because a drum and horn ensemble <laughs> in um, in all of those buildings yep that would be a nightmare to mike and record i didn't even think about that oh, yeah someone goodness. got that without all the bouncing oh and stuff. my god so, it would be all yeah, over shout out to them before we leave this i forgot to mention my other favorite part of watching the macy's day parade so all of the people that are standing around the floats that aren't uh balloons uh particularly the ones where you'll have musical celebrities and they'll give a little two-minute performance some of those handlers, you could tell they had the conversation the night before. Okay, when Kelly Rowland or whoever, you know, performs the song in front of Macy's for the cameras, what sort of dancing are we going to do? <laughs> some, of the, some of the people have that conversation and some of them don't. Oh, my gosh. Some of those folks, some of those older uh, people that I honor look so awkward <laughs> i'd be embarrassed for them but it, yeah. but that's a part of the fun imagine how they feel <laughs> right right well you know again i already spoke to the band directors y'all need to think about your musical selection the girls want to have fun scott i was i was i was in my in I, I had my mimosa in the air i in my bathrobe i was having fun watching these little girls play this song on uh on tv i don't need to hear something from Les Mis or in, insert <laughs> musical here because you're in New York City with your marching band. Huh. It, it, it's fine. But 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 that that performance particularly I love. Um, so anyway, shout out to all the band directors. I hope you pick some good music. And if you're going to be a handler next year or the years to come, just decide amongst yourself what sort of dance y'all going to do because because y'all be looking crazy on TV. So, <laughs> man, you're starting to make me feel like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge over here. <laughs> I don't like float. I don't like. You just need to band. watch. You need to watch the right holiday content, the right holiday programming. Because again, it's the Macy's Day Parade that gets me into the spirit. That's the thing that mm. kicks me in. Okay, fine. Christmas music on the radio. I'll go watch Elf. Go watch Elf. Yeah, Elf is a good one. All right. Anyway, uh, that's uh, that's my first little uh, sharp. Maybe I didn't give it. I'll give it there uh, for this week. Um, what sort of accidental? Did you bring in? I have a chart for this one and really uh, sort of a nice chain of events that tied everything I'm bringing in this week together. Sure. Um, uh, I, I found out about the post-classical ensemble. Have you heard of this band? Um, now, nobody has taken me up on the uh, whole black season of music. Right, right. But post classical ensemble is getting close. They have a they they are doing um, a, a season long project that explores the roots of America's black classical music, and uh, one of the uh, concerts that they have coming up in March is going to feature William Levy Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, which mm-hmm. will, I will feature in the second movement. Yep. Um, but I went over to Post Classical Ensemble's website and listened to their mission, co-founded by Angel Gil Ordonez and Joseph Horowitz in 2003. Post Classical Ensemble challenges and redefines what an orchestra does by radically rethinking the concert experience. That's why the Washington Post has called us wildly adventurous. Mm, mm. 
Yeah. Go ahead. Go it ahead. kind of sounds like the orchestra manif- the idea of triloquy, you know, so yeah. similar missions. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read here a little bit. This is from uh, the 1A.org. It says here, post-classical ensemble executive director Joseph Horowitz has previously acted as our guide as we explored the relevance of composers Antonin Dvorak and Aaron Copland to America's cultural history. Uh First and foremost, as we do that, I hope y'all don't forget that Aaron Copeland didn't think any woman should ever be composing anything. That's yeah. the story that we forget. Uh, and speaking, you know, in the downbeat, we were talking about censorship and and the arts and radio and and uh, and classical spaces. I think as Aaron Copeland, he didn't he write that song that goes, "I bought me a cat, the cat chased me, the bun yep. bun on the apple bought, tree, bought or him a wife too." And it, right, so. Think about that. Think, think about that. The idea of a man who didn't think any women should be in any of these creative spaces. Talk about buying a wife. Mm. Okay. That's y'all's faith. That's y'all's de- They call him the Dean of American composers, right? That's y'all's Dean. Cause they ain't got nothing to do with me. So within <laughs> these conversations, as we dig in and, and look at the intersections of non-black composers, uh, in the importance of black music in the United States, you got to uncover it all. Don't don't play it safe. Be trill. Yeah, keep, keep it trill. Stay controversial. As I started to listen to the One A, they have uh, a program that uh, called Lost and Found: America's Black Classical Music, and Horowitz is uh, uh, heavily featured throughout. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and they started to talk about uh, the premiere of Dawson's Negro folk symphony and how everybody said, you know, some of the top uh, critics were saying, this is the most important American symphony to date. Yeah. You know, this, and everybody loved it, right? Yeah. And then it didn't get played. Okay. So don't listen to me preach nothing. Sit Mm -hmm. and ask yourself, why do you think that is? If everybody likes it, why did it fall into obscurity? Oh, but we know why. I, I'm not here to answer that. I'm a, I, whoever has their earbuds in right now, they can they can answer. Sure, but listen to this program too because I thought that it brought up an interesting piece that you know we talk about black people pimping the pain for DEI now. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and that sort of thing. And and it makes and it makes me I don't feel comfortable listening to it now. You yeah, know, because they're having to go through it again, and I can go and read it elsewhere without them reliving it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, these sor- songs of sorrow is how they were sometimes referred to, or so- these somber songs, black performers avoided them because they were too close to it. Right. And it was too painful to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it gets co-opted by the white performer in vaudeville. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it made me think back to the opus where the guest was Joy, mm-hmm. the bassoonist Joy. Yep. And you were talking about the need to not only hear the music and understand the music, but also learn the stories. Right. Education. Mm-hmm. Right. So I feel like post-classical ensemble is doing that. And 1A has uh, this series of audio projects that they're doing. Um, this education piece is happening you know, in yeah. interesting spots. I also found uh, a new book by Quest Love. He's taking the, an, a, a, a completely different approach at educating people about uh, black music. He is, his, uh, his book 
aims to offer a perspective on the history of the U.S. and the history of Questlove by using one song from each year of the author's life to reflect on the times that shaped the music and the music that shaped the times. So we're getting yeah. all sorts of different layers of context. And now. let's just draw that comparison. You know, when we talk about education, it's so easy for people to say, well, why does it matter that such and such was black or the music is good for music's sake? And okay, fine. How more impactful is listening to Beethoven five now that the world has the story of his deafness to connect to mm. that? What are some mm. of the other uh, broadly known uh, Western classical music stories? Beethoven was uh, uh, was on his deathbed when the uh, when the what's the name was written, uh, the Requiem was written. And then, yeah. they, you know, yeah. if you're really a nerd like I am, you know, you get into how maybe the Illuminati killed him because they were upset at what he was putting out there with the magic flute. Anyway, all of these little uh, accoutrements, as you would say, play a role into the music. Last week, we were talking about how the music is more than just the notes and rhythms, is the culture and the people and the stories. So, you know, I know that it's challenging because of America and, and her fuck shit to really really go into the history and the stories of some of the black music, you know, because of the context of, of it all. I understand that that's challenging, but we need to put the same respect on that as we, uh, you know, tell all of these fun trifles of stories about the, the European composers. We have to get into the realness of America's composers, especially black America's composers. That's why I can't recommend enough. Uh, if you're interested in hearing some of the, um, uh, getting the real backstory on some of these black composers and musicians. Lost and Found, uh, America's Black Classical Music from the 1A is great. And check out Post Classical Ensemble. I dig their vibe. Yeah, I'll have uh, links to that in the description. So they'll, yeah, and next March they have a concert where they're going to to play the Dawson Negro Folk Symphony. That's yeah, I've, I've, I've played uh, the Dawson uh, several times on stage. Of course, I aired it a lot uh, over my uh, radio time. Really, really incredible piece of music. We'll, we'll listen to a little bit of that in the second movement today. But before we leave this accidental, Scott, I have to say, <laughs> reading and learning about news like this puts a deeper context to my own work as an individual. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, this work has been going on for decades and X, Y, and Z, but I'm finally getting to the point in my work and in my career where I'm seeing stories being told to audiences for the first time that I feel like I've been telling my whole career. Again, when I was reading about uh, Copeland in the article there, they also mentioned Dvorak. In most of my guest lectures and presentations and uh, keynotes and things that I do these days, Dvorak's name comes up because I think it's important to note that not only should you as an American be affirming Afro-American music as classical music, you had this man all the way over from Europe doing the same thing 150 years ago or whatever, you know, in the late uh, 19th century. So mm -hmm. not that we need the white Europeans man affirmation, but it is of note. You know, he's completely un disconnected, unconnected to the stories and to the, the narrative of America and came here and recognized Negro melodies, as he described them, as the foundation of what America should be focused on when we talk about education and honoring our American musical tradition. So all of that to say, it's something for me to hear, you know, and read about these stories, these new programs that are doing this because... 
You know, oh, I he copied my whole fucking flow. <laughs> word for word, bar for bar. I, that, that's how I feel. So, I, so, I've been so, there with you. so, so, talk. To, yeah, I, I want you to speak to that. You've been on this podcast for you know working on three years now. I've been doing the work specifically. I mean, since I turned on a microphone at the intersection of race and contemporary culture and all of those things, and now we're seeing the the conversation sort of bloom and more and more radio stations, more and more institutions being willing to engage these conversations. And I ain't nowhere to be found in none of this stuff. And not that I need to, to have my hands in everything, but it's definitely something for me to engage seeing the conversation grow that you know uh that that i've been planting the seeds i feel like i've been planting for years now i mean uh, you but you're, you're saying that you can speak to that you have felt that at times as a presenter or whatever a radio host felt which part of it the the oh wow they're doing something that i've been doing forever now or they're talking about something that i've been preaching for decades or whatever yeah um it's changed over the years because it used uh, in the in the back of my mind when I was in my 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. I would be thinking that you copied my whole flow mm -hmm. word for word, bar for bar. Mm -hmm. I would be thinking that then. Now I look back at it as um, they somebody heard me yeah. And, yeah. and is taking it. Yeah. They, they're going to take it to someplace else. Yeah. That's legacy. Yeah. And I don't, I don't need to say, you got that from me. It's enough to hear it and go, I, yeah, I know where you got that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it, you know, all of that to say it's it's definitely improved, you know, a, a level of my maturity, even as, as an activist, understanding that this work goes beyond me. It goes beyond my reach. So exactly. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm happy to um, to to see it. It, it. It's really encouraging for me to see these conversations become just completely normal. How how, you know, uh, conversations of uh, Henry Thacker Berlay and William Levy Dawson and their interactions with folks like uh, Antonin Dvorak, that's not the specialty side weekend programming or you know that that's just a part of, of, of what yeah. folks are talking about in the arts and I, I think that's really incredible and you know of course I think about all of the older folks who have been in this work for literally decades you know the folks who were around in the 60s and 70s and 80s in these classical spaces pushing and mm -hmm. trying to get it done so you, the, you the, know the, the, the work didn't start yesterday it's not going to be over tomorrow I do think that the focus of the story should be Burley rather than Dvorak because mm -hmm. if you want to talk about trust yeah if Burley did not feel they all in this program they talked about how Burley would not want to sing these right songs of sorrow or how, right? especially how he was dealing with people who didn't want to and right and for him to share that with Dvorak shows just uh, a high degree of trust. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, uh, I forget what opus number, but I talked with uh, Dr. Louise Toppin about mm. ab about that, I think, mm. earlier this year. I'll, I'll, I'll take you even a step further. When I tell this story and uh, the, the history of blackness and classical music in America, I make sure to say the name Jeanette Thurber as well. Sure. See, you we bet. don't we you don't bet. say her name every time. And we need to, especially, you know, as radical as it was for a woman in the late 19th century to, to try to head something or be in charge of something. And then on top of that, have the radical, just outrageous idea that women and people of color should also be taught music. Can you imagine 
can you imagine there was a time when that concept, the idea of not just little white boys going to music school being a radical idea. And that was a woman at the head of all of this. She's the one that got Dvorak over here and introduced him to Henry Thacker Berlay and and got all this black music written down in X, Y and Z. So we have to say her name too, Jeanette Thurber. Jeanette Thurber. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, to transition out of this. Uh, since you mentioned the the Questlove composition, right. the Questlove um, book, you can find the Questlove story on uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's Inquirer.com. Music is history, and I don't know when that's coming out, but the article was only published a few days ago, so we probably got a couple of weeks before it hits yeah. bookstores. Well, for folks. For some reason, who don't know who Questlove is, <laughs> uh, when I hear the name Questlove, I think about the Roots, this band that's been around forever. They have a, a talk show gig now, or they did. Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm not. I'm, that's past my bedtime, I suppose, or 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 or, or past what's marketed to me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> my my Roots tune that I always go to, I even have it uh, on vinyl, um, is one that features Erica Badu, the famous You Got Me. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to get us to our final accidental. Things Fall Apart is the name of that album. Uh, years ago, before I moved here to Minnesota, I was in uh, Tennessee. I was in a liquor store and this tune was on and I get to the register and the, the precious little uh, you know, twenty year old behind the maybe I guess it was a liquor store. So I mean, the the little twenty one year old behind the counter goes, "I've been repeating this song, this new song, over and over again. Have you heard this before?" I I grabbed my whatever I was buying and my pocketbook and walked out of there. <laughs> like we, we and and maybe this ties into uh, that sort of idea that younger activists like myself we see our work as being new and groundbreaking when it's been happening years and years and years before you know mm -hmm. same with this music mm -hmm. it, it's a classic and they're still playing it people are still discovering it if you don't know um things fall apart uh i, I hope i'm not messing up that title that album title i'll have it uh, correct in the description but if you don't know the roots if you don't know that tune uh specifically go back and listen to that american classical music as far as i'm concerned especially when you're talking about um someone like Questlove, who has been on, um, you know, on, on the circuit of uncovering and sharing this history for a long time now. He has a, a, a drunk history episode. Did, oh, does did he? you know that? I Where didn't. he talks about the history of hip hop. He talks about the first time someone does the, um, the record, the record scratch. scratch. I thought I had a, a record scratch on here. Do I not? It, it, it's somewhere on this board. Anyway, he talks about the first time that 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 record scratch happened and uh, uh, the first time uh, the the repeated beat uh, sort of process of hip hop music. He talks about how the breakdown of some of these soul hits 
that part of the music became the the basis of hip hop anyway. So he's dedicated to the history of it all and and to the education of it all. So shout out to to, to Questlove. Uh, Another sharp out to him and all the work it's he's funny doing you with the mention roots. that I listened to that video earlier today where he talked about that very thing. Oh, so did you? That's out did there you? too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, for our last uh, final accidental for this week, I guess I'm going to give this a natural. We're looking at the Grammy nominations for the 2022 ceremonies before we get into anything. It's always so funny to me. Interesting to me, Scott. All over the timeline for most of the year, especially, and I'm no no shade, you know, if the bullet touches your spirit, let it touch it, I suppose. Most of the year from artists on my timeline, I see, oh, I don't need no affirmation. My music is my music. And um, I, I, I have my own creative process and X, Y and Z. Can't nobody do nothing. And then, you know, when it comes time for Grammy time, I'm seeing everyone's status for your consideration, please go to this website and vote for X, Y, and Z, and da, 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 or whatever. Okay, so do we need the outside white institutional validation or not? Okay, what do you think about a Grammy award? I would. Uh, I don't think podcasts can get Grammys. Comedy albums can get Grammys. So, Wouldn't so let isn't this spoken word? Right. So, so let's say we uh, submitted or whatever, and were nominated and something happened and we won. I would be happy to win a Grammy, but I for real don't need the the outside affirmation. Like I'm <laughs> I'm I'm serious. Yeah. You're you're not going to see one of the oh please consider voting for a triloquy or please consider voting for X Y and Z. And I'm not shitting on people who who do that because being able to compete at that level is very very notable. You know, I have a lot of friends at this point with with Grammy Awards. I, I think that's dope. I think that's really phenomenal. And I applaud them. And if you don't need the outside validation, you don't need the outside validation. So take that to take take what you want. Take what you want from that. It is what it is. They would give that they give the spoken word out. That award is given at like noon. <laughs> There's no camera crew. That's the, right. That's the other thing. If I got to see some of my friends go up on stage and, and give a heartfelt speech. It'd be it'd be another thing, but they they don't respect they don't respect the right. the classical and the instrumental, the jazz, all that stuff. Anyway, we're gonna look at some of this stuff anyway. So I'm looking. I'll, I'll have the uh, the link to this uh, Grammy.com. They've listed all of the nominees, and we're gonna take a look at some of the categories. First and foremost, the big award, Record of the Year. This is award to the artists and to the producers, recording engineers, and mixers and mastering engineers. Um, if other than the artist. So basically record of the year is different from song of the year. And that is looking at the whole thing as a work of art, the whole production of this song of, of, of this record that was created. And we have a really diverse uh, <laughs> lineup in more ways than one yeah. listed here. First is ABBA. Were you listening to, and I'm not even trying to make a joke. Like were, were you there for the first iteration of ABBA when they were around back when? They were near the that was seventies, right? Yeah, they were near the uh, the end of their first crest when I first started to pay attention to them. But after that, you know, I knew all their tracks. Okay, take a chance. Yeah, I had never, and I, I only know Abba's music. Well, let me first say that in some of my guest hosting and in some of the content I've been creating for uh, radio stations, 
I've been slipping in some of the new ABBA. You know, they they came out with a, a, a album, a record uh, this year. They're nominated for a tune called "I Still Have Faith in You." But so so I have been including that because I think there's very uh, classic aspects to their newer stuff. As far as their older stuff, I don't really know it outside of "Mamma Mia." Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my 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 late ex, he's he's dead now. Rest in peace to Andy. Uh, he forced me to watch Mamma Mia. I didn't want to see it. I don't like musicals because I feel like they're doing more hollering and screaming than singing. But <laughs> after he forced me to watch it, I was like, okay, Abba did it. Abba, Abba wrote this music. I mean, you said take a chance. I think about uh, Super Troopers. I love that tune. Um, there's one um, uh, slipping through my fingers. Meryl Streep sings it so beautifully. Let's, let's, uh, let, let, let's take a listen to it here. School bag in hand, she leaves home in the early morning, waving goodbye with an absent-minded smile. I watch her go with a surge of that well-known sadness, and I have to sit down for a while. The, the, the more seasoned listeners can can sing the rest of that. Y'all know the music. Or or even if you watch the, the Mamma Mia movie, one of the uh, this is not a Mamma Mia accidental, but let me say this but, uh, before we continue with this Grammy list. There are more movies than Mamma Mia that take the discography of bands or of artists and try to fit in into like a musical. For me, Mamma Mia is the only one that works. Dell, you know, sitting, uh, speaking of partners sitting me down in front of movies, Dell set me down in front of Across the Universe, which is uh, like the Beatles music mm-hmm. set to story. And I've that that one gets the flat for me. Like I, I, I was like, why am I watching this? But Mamma Mia worked. Mamma Mia works. A, did you ever see A Knight's Tale? I don't think so. Is that that's the music of whom? Heath Ledger is uh, a medieval knight, and they put rock under it, like Queen. But is it all Queen's music? That's what I'm speaking to. Like taking one discography and setting it to. I don't to remember. Film. I don't yeah. remember. In, anyway, shout out to to Abba. But also in this record of the year category, you have uh, John Batiste, who whose music uh, is being uh, premiered. Uh, a new work by the Gateways Festival Orchestra uh, at Carnegie Hall in April. I'm excited to be there and and hopefully get a, a selfie with John Batiste. But then you also have uh, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga up here. Justin Bieber, Nim, Brandy Carlisle, Doja Cat, and SZA, uh, Billie Eilish. Uh, Lil Nas X, Olivia Rodrigo, and then of course Silk Sonic. So, of these, of the ones you know, the ones you've heard, what would you say was the record of the year? You know, and and not just the one you like the best, but 2021 and 50 years when they're talking about the music of this year. Which of these do you think should get that award of record of the year? Okay, I just changed my answer. Then I know two tracks. Okay. And I'm going to say Montero, call me by your name. Really? Okay. See, I would think you would say uh, the the Silk Sonic because I don't know all of these either. But if it's record of the year, it needs to be one that I know. It needs to be one that was just in the general zeitgeist. You right. Know? But the thing is, is that Silk Sonic, they've got a great track. Mm-hmm. Did it move the needle? I don't know. I, I, I think a lot of folks were singing 
in that old 60s, 70s, 80s black right. style that wouldn't have been otherwise. Right. And Lil Nas X is doing something brand new. I think that that's a high watermark. Okay. I think that I, that's the reason why it, it, it's not my favorite of, of the two, mm-hmm. but it is the one that I think should be remembered years down the road because that's an important part in, point in time. Yeah. He did. We we have given Lil Nas X his flowers though. I mean, he hit one with Old Town Road in mm-hmm. 2020. So we he 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 has gotten his flowers. He's not someone who is being overlooked. But I suppose we'll see. Um, in addition to uh, the record of the year category, I did want to skip down quickly to the uh, classical category. So let me go down to category. 75 here okay so category 75 is best engineered album in the classical category so uh we have um uh, a project here called archetypes which i'm rooting for (laughs) only because the only other nominees are the music of beethoven the music of beethoven again and the music of Mahler. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what, what, what do we have to well, say? Well, there's Christmas, a Shannon clear Christmas. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cute. That, that's, that's really fine. Then they weren't nominated for record of the year though, were they? So <laughs> what, what do you think it would take to have a classical recording up there in that top category? I mean, John Batiste is close. Like that's as close as I feel like we've gotten in a while because he's def- he, he de- well, Lil Nas X doesn't have his finger in the classical world in the same way as John Batiste does. You, you can't argue that, you know, Lizzo does. Yeah, you're right. But she's not nominated this year. Right. Anyway. Um, so, so there's that, you know, just some, some more of the same old, I'm scrolling down here. Why did I want to look at category 77? Oh yes. Best orchestral performance. So this really is our record of the year, right? You mm-hmm. know, the the tunes that we're going to be talking about on the radio and our presentations. We have several things here. So we have some John Adams, Beethoven 9. Why are we still nominating Beethoven 9 for awards <laughs> after 200 and whatever years, after 200 and la da da years? I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, so, but, but watch it win. I don't know. We'll see. And then we have music by Nico Muley. Uh, shout out to Nico Muley. Uh, I, I've been, you know, covering his music for a long time, mm-hmm. a member of the queer community, if I'm remembering, remembering correct. So I would always uh, integrate his music into my programming in uh, May. In addition to um, throughout the world, we have Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. I know a lot of people don't you know, know that title, but that's, of course, the what are they what what do people associate with Space Invaders or? No, Space Odyssey. Space 2000, Odyssey. 2001, Space Odyssey. Okay. The, the, you know, the horns, the bomb. Yeah. Bah, but yeah, I, I know the piece. I don't know what they are. So I know also Sprague's Zarathustra because mm-hmm. that's what I learned. But for the folks who don't know that title, you know, that that tune is um, nominated. And then we have uh, Florence Price up here um, as performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra Symphonies numbers one and three. We're getting to the point to where more folks are knowing the name Florence Price. Now her music is nominated for a Grammy. Look Why is everybody recording Florence Price is one and three. Where's two? I think two is lost, actually. All right, let me shut my mouth. Um, but, <laughs> and, but there is a- I was I, about to take my shoe off and pound it on the but table. But I, I kind of feel like there's a, I want, I want to say there's a fourth 
uh, that that people play that's as accurate. well. Yeah, but yeah. and and I'll I'll do a natural next week if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure the second is lost. That that's why you don't see people uh, performing it. But that mm. third movement, uh, another week we'll we'll dig into uh, that that third symphony because that third movement just has so much humidity and laziness in the best way in it. So I'm rooting for the the Florence Price for orchestral performance of the year. And then finally, um, I just wanted to shine a light on um, uh, the 78th category uh, best opera recording. When we think of opera, you know, we think of Mozart, we think of Magic Flu, we think of Carmen, I suppose. We think of Wagner. Um, maybe we think of uh, Puccini and, and mm-hmm. Aida and, and, and all that stuff. But in this list, we're really seeing uh, titles and composers that I wouldn't expect to see in uh, this category. We have uh, Bartok, Bluebeard's Castle. I have performed uh, that opera, but... Um, I don't uh, know Akhenaten by yeah, Glass. Yeah, Philip Glass's Akhenaten. That, that was um, performed... Uh, this year and uh, you know Janai Bridges uh, who was uh, uh, featured in that performance you know she's one of the the black opera singers who's really leading the way in many of these conversations so I guess I might be rooting for that but we have uh, Yana Cech's Cunning Little Vixen I've never played it but I know the story of that opera are you are you familiar with that one yeah but I've forgotten I think long long story short it's about uh it's a little patriarchal, you know. You can even get it from cunning little Vixen. That some title, mistaken so. identity, all of all of that stuff. Uh, costumes, uh, little cross dressing, yeah. mm-hmm. and then we have. I think his name is David Little. I'm not familiar with his music. I'll have to um, or their music. I'll have to uh, dig in uh, deeper. And then uh, you have Francis Poulenc, who had uh, an opera out. I don't know Poulenc's operas. I'm very familiar with this chamber music, but anyway. And there's Yannick again. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, Yannick Nizes, the conductor. Mm-hmm. Yannick, yeah. So um, I don't know. I'll I, I might turn on the Grammys just as uh, background noise when it whenever it airs because they don't put these classical awards on the ra- on the radio on the TV. Um, but I'm I'm still you know rooting for everyone. So I guess under best orchestral performance, I hope to see. Uh, Florence Price's legacy honored. They'll perform. Maybe they'll performatively do it. That's the thing with inequity. No matter how good you do, grumps like me are gonna act like you're doing it just to be performative. So, um, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm rooting for it anyway. I would love to see um, the Philip Glass honored in the opera category because Philip Glass is one of those composers I've been a fan of for you know a long time, and I would love to see new opera, relatively new opera, uh, getting recognized. As far as best engineered album i don't know I'll, I'll root for archetypes because i don't have a reason to vote for beethoven and mahler you know once again and then all the way back up to that first category the big one record of the year i am expecting silk sonic to get it oh, yeah. um but i'll also root for Lil nas x because Lil nas x has been out here really misbehaving and i mm-hmm. live i love it uh but we're gonna oh, go ahead uh, did you have Something else there before we transition. Oh, okay. No, I just sniffed. Oh, okay. Well, um, we'll we'll go ahead and transition uh, into the second movement where Scott and I are going to take the second ending with uh, a piece of music by John Batiste, one of the tunes that he is nominated for in the um in the Grammys. This work is called Movement Eleven, a really beautiful mix of so-called jazz and so-called classical that I hope wins record of the year. Let's take a listen to a little bit of it as we get into the second movement.
always up. Of course, all of the jazz stations, all of the uh, jazz institutions have been platforming that and will do so even more if it wins record of the year. Again, a historic moment as far as I'm concerned for something that's not a pop tune to be recognized at the Grammys in this way. What we just listened to, uh, do you think there's a chance of that making it into the classical media spaces, the classical radio uh, spaces. It's in the so-called jazz technique, but it's very much instrumental and very much a record that has been nominated as one of the best of the year. Do you think we'll see it? Do you think there's room for it, for that aesthetic? I think there's room for it. Will we hear it? Probably yeah. not. Really? That's too bad. That's too bad. I'm just being honest. Yeah. I'm no, talking know. about talking, know. You know, the way that it is right now. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about American classical, I mean, I think it's a very base level conversation to consider jazz as such because it, it didn't it, it it didn't come from anywhere else in the same way that we honor the classical drumming of Africa, the the uh, classical shamisen of Japan, the age old classical traditions of the Arhu and whatever else in mm-hmm. China. I mean, here in America, jazz is that, you know, right. especially what we just heard. So I hope one day, I, I hope one day we will see that making it in, um, I, you know, and, and, and I think that serves as a good transition here in the second movement um, for new folks. This is where Scott and I here in the second movement uh, take a re-listen to a piece of music we've been repeating over and over all week. And instead of repeating it fully one more time, we take the second inning and talk about why we have been spending some time with it. So. Long story short, uh, over uh, so-called Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and the remainder of the weekend, me deciding (laughs) to take some time off and Dell having time off, we decided to, you know, just sort of ride around the Twin Cities, go to this shop, see what this deal is, see what this local shop is talking about. And, you know, when when you really drive the span of the Twin Cities, you can be in the car for 30, 35, 40 minutes going from A to B, especially from opposite ends, you know, even even longer than that. But there's something so cozy and so uh, Christmas spirit about just being in a warm, toasty car, driving through town, looking at all the pretty lights and having that beautiful Christmas music going, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I asked you if that John Batiste is one that you think might make it into the classical spaces in your years in classical radio is the Vince Guaraldi trio music that has made it into the classical stations or has that been pushed over into the jazz as well? Well, when I remember playing it, I was at KVNO mm-hmm. and that was usually some of the first stuff that got played sure. when, we, when we flipped the switch from classical to jazz. Mm. Oh, I see. I see. You know, it was it was okay bridge content. Yeah, yeah. We we need to continue to blur those lines because Vin, the Vince Guardi trio, I think, is another prime example of American classical from the Christmas perspective. You know, so anyway, yeah. um, as me and Dell were driving around, we we dug deep into the Christmas hip hop genre. We'll talk about that another week, but because that is a deep and rich genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but after we were done with that, Dell cut on uh, some of the Vince Guaraldi trio music uh, from the uh, from the Charlie Brown. You know, I didn't grow up with the Charlie Brown special and none of that because uh, I don't I don't want to unpack it too much here. But long story short, my parents recognized Christmas 
as a pagan holiday and not a Christian holiday. Yeah. And we grew up conservative Christian enough to not celebrate Christmas. You know, some of the so-called conservatives today will be like, oh, keep the Christ in Christmas. My dad will come in the room and be like, actually, he was he wasn't in it to at the beginning. So what are y'all talking about? <laughs> you know, see, you see where I get my attitude from right. anyway. So uh the the music from the Charlie Brown Christmas special is still relatively new to me. You know, I've known it for years, but I didn't grow up with it. So we're listening to that and we're riding around and we're getting close to home, getting toward uh, the end of that list. And this music from the Vince Guaraldi Christmas Trio uh, uh, Trio Christmas album comes up. So, of course, most folks would know this as the famous for Elise by Ludwig van Beethoven. Yep. Um, this recording specifically snapped me back out of that old, warm, cozy Christmas feeling because there is uh, some uh, there's some challenges in my family right now. So my younger brother, Brandon, he lost his daughter. Elise. She was two years old. She finally lost her battle with, with cancer. And hearing this tune in that Vince Guaraldi mix just instantly brought me back to her and thinking about her. We've talked about death. We've talked about losing people on this podcast a lot. Uh, and I'll just reiterate what I always say, you know, as challenging of a time as this is for me and for my family, my sorrow doesn't manifest in tears, in sadness, and needing to take time off. Yes, I, I maybe I don't need to be in my inbox or or in my DMs talking to people. I need some time with myself and my family and and Dell and all of and all of that. But when I think about death, I think about opportunity. That's always uh, and not only opportunity but responsibility. That's always what's triggered in me. We can, you know, and earlier we were talking about the stories, the accoutrements to uh, uh, the the so-called classical music we're so used to and the ones that uh, the tunes that we aren't used to. We know the story of for at least from Beethoven's perspective and, you know, the uh, uh, eternal beloved or, or whatever. Immortal beloved. Immortal uh, beloved. All of that's great. But for me now and forever. Every time I hear that, whether it's uh, from the Christmas album and it's more traditional settings, whatever, I'm going to think about that little girl, Elise, you know, that me and my family got to know for a couple years of her life. When I when I hear this tune and think of her, I always think about how hard some of these kids have to fight so early on in in their lives. You know, shout out to St. Jude and to all of the incredible work they're doing uh, in researching and curing cancer from children. Elise didn't make it, but I honor the work that's being done. And and I and I hope folks will, you know, go make a contribution or, or whatever you can to that children's hospital because they're giving hope where there is no other hope. When Elise was born, we knew that there might be some problems, but that hospital gave us hope. And she lived for two more years than many doctors thought she would, period. And there's so much joy and so much, so many stories and memories we have just from her two years here on, on earth. When I think about, you know, again, those responsibilities, those opportunities, Elise won't have the opportunity to, you know, get into middle school and join the band and, and go on a crazy 
problematic musical journey that I've been on. You know, at least won't grow up to have to, you know, cuss out her boss or whatever, challenge her institution because they're being racist or patriarchal or whatever. She can't be a part of the bigger pushes for change. She won't get to see why folks like me are so dedicated to the work that we do. So I take all of that on. I have to realize her karma. I have to realize what she was not able to do, the energy that she was not able to put into this work. Um, all of that to say, Fur Elise has been a tune that I've been listening to after I was sort of snapped out of that Christmas moment, riding around in the car, listening to the Vince Guaraldi trio and 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 hearing that treatment. So Rest in peace, rest in power to Elise Rose. If you're a, a praying person or a warm energy person, I hope that you'll send some of that to um, my brother Brandon, um, his partner, our whole family, and, and to everyone. I don't come to this microphone today thinking about her death, her re very recent death, filled with sorrow. I come to it filled with responsibility, and I encourage everyone to try to flip that idea in your own life. Last week, I briefly spoke to turning poison into medicine. I hope that everyone will consider that. Losing a loved one is hard. I can't imagine losing a child. I, ca I can't begin to imagine that. I mean, they they say, people say that is the greatest pain mm. that a person mm. can ever feel. You know, um, I feel that pain. I understand that pain, but I, I, I take power in it. I take power in it. I'm pushing even more fervently. I'm being even more unapologetic because she won't have the opportunity to be. So that means I have to work double, triple, quadruple time. Shout out to uh, the Vince Guaraldi trio for bringing me to that mindset, for giving me the opportunity to really meditate over her short life uh, and and what we can do with it beyond their treatment of fur release. Of course, I think everyone should listen to the, all of those other classic so-called jazz standards. But again, that's a that that's a, a story and a feeling that I will always connect to that music now. When I'm 170 years old and I hear somebody play for at least, I'm gonna think about that little two-year-old who who didn't get to 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 live longer. So that's the music I've been spending some time this week and some of the energy and some of the meditations and spirits I've been trying to keep myself in chanting and and mm -hmm. um and, and doing you know everything i can to reframe my perspective is is really important and i know a lot of people uh you know for the, the, these holiday seasons are rough for them because mm -hmm. a lot of people have lost people during the holiday season you know they're folks that they're they wish they could be around and and x y and z we have to keep our spirits high we have to keep our spirits positive because we have been given the continued gift of life how dare we sit around depressed how dare we sit around not wanting to do anything being here alive when other people did not get the opportunity my second movement for at least as written by Beethoven long, long ago, as contextualized by my uh, life's events. Rest in peace, rest in power to Elise Rose. My condolences, Garrett. That's terrible news. Sorry to hear. Yeah, yeah. What you got this week? What you got this week? Well, going from that article with uh, Lost and Found, America's Black Classical Music, and it highlighted William Levy Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. And I'm not very familiar with it, mm -hmm. but I've been to it three times. And in particular, the second movement. And I think that it fits with the way that a lot of people are feeling right now. And certainly it's become crystal clear after you've talked about Elise. Um, 
because the second movement, it has a title, right? Um, help me with the title. Does Hope it, in the Night. Hope in the Night. And there's a particular point in the second movement that for me, every single time I get goose flesh and my mm-hmm. the hair on my arm stands up with the swell at the end of the second movement. And you talked about it as being um, not quite hopeful. What was the word that you uh yeah what what word am i looking for it's like the well let's let's listen to a little bit of it first So you have those orchestral swells on top of uh, the percussion, just giving that steady, you know, it's a drive. The, 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 the work hammer, mm-hmm. you know, that song on top of that, uh, in, in the intro to that little excerpt, we heard the bass clarinet giving an echo to one of the many old work songs, work hollers, spirituals that were sung way back when, you know, first of all, when we talk about the Negro folk symphony, we're talking about Negro folk music and what is black folk music, but American folk music. The music doesn't come from anywhere else. So when we get to the ending of this, it's a three movement symphony. When we get to the end of this middle movement, what I hear is William Levy Dawson putting into music, you know, that feeling of how long we got to go. My, my grandmother, uh, uh, used to use a phrase and other older folks I know we got a long road to hoe mm-hmm. it's like when you're you know working in the fields my living grandmother who worked on a real life cotton field you know we try to we try to act like this stuff was so long ago who is still alive I could call her right is a late it's a little late she's asleep now but <laughs> um you know anyway the pro- proverbially having a long road to hoe so when I hear those swells and I hear the percussion just uh hammering down and hammering down I hear William Levy Dawson musically speaking to how far we got to go, how, yes, emancipation came. But after that, we had uh, Jim Crow and the KKK and the formation of the police. After that, we have the civil rights movement and voting rights and all of that stuff. Fast forward to the early 90s, the police still cutting up. You know, we have what happened over in, uh, in Los Angeles with Rodney King. Fast forward to now, we're still having these conversations. So when I hear that swell... And when I hear the ending of, of that second movement, that's that's where my mind goes. That's what I'm thinking about, how far we've come, because we have come such a long way, but how far we got to go, because they still aren't putting the black music on the classical radio, right? We were talking about the John Batiste and all of that, all of these program, you've got me in my feelings now, all of these program directors who want to talk about target sound, who want to talk about what's radio friendly, what our audience wants to hear, the service we're providing, what they don't see is the racist and white supremacist structures that they are a part of 
actively working in, in the context of what William Levy Dawson is talking about in this piece of music. This is your second ending. I shouldn't be sitting here preaching, but that's what I think about. When I hear that swell, I, my mind instantly goes there. It's why it's my favorite movement of the symphony and one of my favorite pieces of music uh, by a black composer or any composer in the classical catalog. But you see, I don't, I don't see it as my second ending and you shouldn't preach because no because this you know this is we're talking about the education component yeah okay so i just got a little sermon that brought something different to the music your perspective made me listen to it differently because you sit here and talk about how how dare we be depressed when we're alive yeah okay well i'm i spend quite a bit of time feeling that way yeah and i can't help it yeah. But when I listen to this and I think of just the title and those swells, the hope in the night, if we don't have hope, then what else is there? Yeah. And if you don't trust in something coming on the horizon that's going to be better, Ooh. then what then what are we struggling for? What, what are we doing what any is, of this? What for? is the continuing striving for? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I hear is that. It, it it gives me a little bit more of the thread that I'm hanging by to grip. What are uh, when you're presenting this piece of music to your radio audience? Audience, you only got a little bit of time. You only got thirty seconds or something. What is the most important information? What what is the story that you think they really need to understand before you press play on this piece of music? How do you present or contextualize well, this to them? To the predominantly white audience. Right. So, yeah. And we, we were talking before about why it got such positive reviews and everybody loved it when it premiered. Mm-hmm. And then it fell. And then you'd think it was never even written right. after that. And then you have motherfuckers talking about, oh, we have finally discovered it or whatever. That, that is how I would post it up. I would ask, listen to, the, listen to this piece of music. It got great reviews and not even say who wrote it. Mm-hmm. Just listen to this. It was great, and it and then and then it didn't get pr- it played again for decades or, or longer. Yeah, and then when it's fifteen minutes later and it's time to press play on the actual piece, that's when I talk about who the composer is. It's called the Negro Folk Symphony, and why do you think it fell out of favor so quickly? Yeah, well, I know why it fell out of favor. I know you know how know. it fell out of favor. I know, but that you asked how I would do yeah. it. So I, I have to have a baseline. Yeah. I have to have a start point. Yeah. And I haven't played it on the year before. So this is where I would start. Oh, really? I oh I guess I was uh illegally subbing it in all the time. But <laughs> but it well, but but it is, you know, that there there's there's even something to that. There's even something to that. Yeah. We'll hear this on Black History Month, or if somebody dares do something for Kwanzaa or whatever, it'll it'll make it through. But this is one of those seminal American compositions that tells an a uniquely American story. Yeah. A lot of people will write it off as, oh, well, we don't want to get political and why does race matter? And you can frame this piece in a in a way that doesn't make people feel guilty and X, Y, Z. Yeah, all of that's true. But what will William Levy Dawson say about that? You know, there there's stories connected to this piece of music uh, where uh, I think uh, when it premiered uh, with the Philadelphia Orchestra, I believe, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, back in 43, mm. if I'm remembering correctly, uh, 
where where William Levy Dawson was talking about his he was sit at his grandmother's knee and listen to her sing all of these old folk songs, all these Negro spirituals and melodies, and he put it into this piece of music. How can you not talk about race? How can you not engage that conversation? And then furthermore, <laughs> if your institution does not have people who can speak to this piece of music from a personal perspective, what are you missing? You know, what 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 experiences are you keeping from your audience by not actively and intentionally making sure that you have folks that can speak to this again? My grand, both of my grandparents, but I know my mom's mom uh, for sure was in those fields singing those songs, not as a slave, uh, so-called, you know, as, not as an antebellum slave, as a sharecropping slave, you know, right. the history of, uh, of America that we don't talk about all right. that much, you know, the sharecropping and, you know, so there's proximity that I can, I can draw from this. So again, just hearing the end of this middle movement of William Levy Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, I just, I like you, I get chills because I I hear, I hear the stories that he spun into this piece of music. I understand the history and the present that, that plays an active role and why this piece is still relatively unknown and how far we got to go. Here's a little bit uh, more of the ending of this to, to phase us out of this. I want to unpack this some some more, but we're 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 running late. Let me let me add. Well, okay, I'll, we'll 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 take the time. Let let me let me ask you this hard question, this difficult question. As I said, that ending reminds me of this of the spirit of how far we got to go. How far do you think we got to go? How 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 long is the road that we got to hoe? from your perspective, when we're talking about decolonizing these music spaces and and uh, positioning our institutions to make music like this, not a part of the extra, not a part of the fringe, but a part of the core, a part of what listeners know as much as they know about Beethoven's deafness or as much as they know about Bernstein's whatever-ness. How long we got to go before folks can matter-of-factly speak to what William Levy Dawson is laying out in this piece of music? You know that I don't know that. Yeah. And if I step out on that tightrope... Well, yeah, you're right. I, I I shouldn't make you list years or whatever. Do you think we're further than not or closer than not? And we'll leave it there. Uh, it depends on which end of the spectrum you're at because you feel like it isn't moving quickly enough mm -hmm. and from your perspective that's accurate you know and you're talking about already having waited centuries yeah so the people who are holding keys and power are going hey 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 slow slow down a minute and i think we're somewhere in the middle hmm. i think we're somewhere hmm. in the middle i i do because i see change happening in key spots it's not happening quickly enough for the people who care about it the most. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat myself 
and then we'll be done. When this piece of music premiered, one of the reasons why it didn't stick, while the institutions didn't continue to celebrate it, is because you had a 100% white perspective and a 100% white sensibility within these institutions. No one could really speak to that personal experience. Here and now today, most of these institutions are still all white and we still have the same outcomes when it comes to diversity and uh, inclusion and programming and, and presentation and all of these things. So shout out to all of y'all in um, these 100%, especially when it comes to your outward, outward uh, facing staff, these 100% white institutions, you're doing the work of white supremacy. Congratulations. Okay, we're gonna transition now into the third movement. Am I wrong? Am I wrong, Scott? All I'm saying is that, is that when I say it, I get dragged. <laughs> when you say it, it's new. Ta I just, I just, I, it's fine. Pe people get pissed at me when I when I say what I see. Yeah, yeah. It's it's difficult, uncomfortable conversations, but an incredible piece of music. If you dare not know William Levy <laughs> Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, cut this podcast off. <laughs> go listen to it right it's really now. Good. It's incredible really work. Anyway, we're uh, transitioning here into the third movement. This week's guest is Julia Adolph. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we were both, Scott, we were both featured on Julia Adolph's podcast, Loose Leaf Notebook, where we talked a bit about mental health and all of those things. I'll have a link to that in the description of this if you want to go back and take a listen. Well, Julia Adolph, uh, in addition to being an advocate uh, for mental health and someone who does a lot of work at the intersection of West and classical music performance composition and mental health uh, she is a composer she has a premiere a world premiere coming this friday if you're listening to this when this comes out friday december 3rd a new violin concerto that we talk a bit about we do return to the topic of mental health and explore a few things in between so glad to be able to feature julia adolph this week alongside scott we double teamed this interview so uh, to get us there we're going to transition with a Julia Adolph composition for solo violin. This tune is called Smile Softly, Softly Smile. A beautiful piece of music to transition into our conversation with Julia Adolph. You know, I, I've been maybe for the past five to 10 years wanting to share publicly that I have generalized anxiety disorder and I've been in therapy and on medication. And it's something that I wanted to share, but I, I didn't really know how or through what format and when, and maybe I wasn't quite ready. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of things just sort of came together in that moment in 2020 when I realized, okay, this is really the time, you know, to be honest and vulnerable and, and maybe help someone else out who is struggling with mental health. And I had felt so stigmatized um, growing up and through my 20s. And so I just felt like, you know, I, it was time to start talking about it publicly in our sure. world. 
I, I want to break down that phrase, uh, keep yourself sane, because we, a, a lot of us may, might use that in jest, but I'll speak for myself. There are things that I do that are very literally, very much literally that. I mean, I, I wonder if you can, you know, get, get into a little bit of that. You know, this isn't just something that is, it's something that impacts our person, our, our very health. Yes, I think we all have outlets that we need, whether it's creative work or exercise um, or, you know, going out and being social. We all have these sort of outlets of release. And so much of that went away during, you know, the height of the pandemic. And so there was I felt incredibly anxious. You know, I, I contemplated going up on my medication I was, of mm -hmm. course, you know, I wouldn't say depressed because I, I, I think of that word in a very clinical sense. Um, so I wasn't depressed, but I felt, you know, extremely sad um, and, and isolated and making these what started out as just sort of these fun video podcasts um, just to feel like I was talking to someone, you know, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> just to sort of like. And then and then to actually share it, you know, on YouTube and on um, on the podcasting platforms and have actually get response and, and see that it was um, helpful to people that really like it really just fulfilled me in a way that I was really needed. And it did make me feel stable and mm -hmm. regulated. Yeah, I found a, an article on newmusicbox.org. Um, where it said that you can trace this all the way back to when you were nine, you know, a, a young girl. But at that time, was there any help? Did your parents notice anything and take steps? Or were you just out there? Because I could I could do that myself. And I felt like I was just out there flailing, you know, right. just trying to get by. Yeah. I mean, so my anxiety first manifested when i was nine and in that article um you know loose leaf notebook is now partnered with new music box so new music usa so they um help produce the the podcast mm. um, and in that article i talk about how um i started writing music around the same time my anxiety manifested and the personal event in my life was that my uncle died um my my mom's brother and he was quite young and he had um you know, he had brain cancer and it was just an incredibly tragic event. And um, that's when I started exhibiting obsessive compulsive behaviors. Mm. And um, I think, you know, I'm I'm lucky in that my parents were very open to the idea of therapy. And there was discussion about whether I mean, I learned in retrospect, there was discussion about whether I should see a child psychologist. Um, but I think they felt that it would pass sort of as I sort of learned to process the grief. And interestingly, the obsessive compulsive, uh, like the, the, you know, the checking, the listing, the, you know, there's very specific uh, behaviors that are associated with obsessive compulsive disorder. Those actually did go away. And so on the surface, I seemed quite, you know, like it had gone. Mm -hmm. But the anxiety was very much still there. Um, and so that didn't really um, become fully fledged until I was about 19. And that's actually the standard kind of period when uh, mental illnesses uh, first manifest. Mm. So a lot of kids can grow up, you know, feeling like regular kids maybe and having 
you know, I mean, usually you can trace it back and you can see there were signs all along, but mm-hmm. a lot of time it doesn't like really fully show up until 18, 19, 20, 21. And I don't know why that is. That's, you know, a biological, a neurological development part of, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I can't really speak to that, but um, I do remember doctors telling me like, this is a normal time for these um, symptoms to first show up. And that's when I started having panic attacks and had to go to the hospital and then it became very obvious that I needed medication as well as therapy too. Yeah. I think I I had a recent visit with my father and I think that he would have really benefited from both of those things. He's 85 and just now confiding all of these deep emotional things that he would wade through on his own, you know? Um, And there's, uh, it, it kind of feeds into this idea that you were quoted in that new music box article that you um, you talked about this myth of this tortured artist, this this person that has been bearing all of these um, negative emotions and and uh, assaults on their work and such. But and it, it, it feeds into that idea that it's it's um, so much so that it's almost put on a pedestal to be this wacky, nutty artist, right? Talk a little bit about that idea and and can we get past it? You know, can we fight through it, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we have to get past it. It's, um, I think it's a very dangerous myth and it's something that definitely stopped me from getting help. Um, you know, I remember as a little kid thinking, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm sad or I'm anxious, but at least it's gonna help me be a good artist. You know, and and no little kid should be thinking that. Um, But, you know, my my parents were both visual artists. As you mentioned, you know, my uncle's a composer. It was very, very much like the arts were a part of my childhood. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, putting your your pain and your anguish into your art. And there are um, ways that I still do that, but it's it's from a healthier perspective. It's, it's, I'm still taking care of myself. I'm still, so even though I have a mental illness, I consider myself mentally healthy right now, right? I'm Mm. in a healthy place and I still process my emotions and my upset and, and my feelings through my art, but it's, but I'm also taking care of myself simultaneously. It's not, you know, this, and I don't, and I think I've become a stronger artist and a, and a more, you know, more in tune with my own voice, the healthier I've become. Yeah. So, so how do you think this conversation parlays with the idea of performance anxiety? You talked about the word depression is very clinical. And I, I know that anxiety is also one of those clinical terms. Is the concept of performance anxiety something that we need to take another look at considering, you know, this intersection that, that you're exploring? That's a great question. I I, I do think it's a, it's its own thing, performance anxiety, because I think that um, people who don't necessarily have a a mental illness or um, could still, or a mental health disorder, could still experience very acute performance anxiety. But I wonder sort of how much there's an overlap and intersection Mm. and that maybe you also have generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder or something else. Um, Or you just, I mean, we, you just struggle with anxiety, you know, if you want to just kind of keep it in that broader, you know, definition, you struggle with anxiety and then it really derails you when you perform. Um, you know, I'm not a performer, so I know less about that personally. 
Um, but I do know that it, it, it ties in so much with all of classical music's, you know, fixation on perfectionism and I'm sure we'll get into that, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that it's that, that that's part of the unhealthy narrative that yeah. you're supposed to be able to just go up there and, and simultaneously, you know, pour all of your heart and soul into your art and not and be vulnerable and not make any mistakes and be this polished thing. It's not doable. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much pressure there. And actually you, you just mentioned something that brought another question to mind. Garrett and I have talked a lot about um, after the murder of George Floyd uh, about all of this amazing art that's being created in this moment as a response to all of this. I wonder if you could talk about the flip side of that uh, in that, you know, putting your emotion, you, you talked about it, putting your emotion out there for everybody to look at. Have you talked to any composers of color on your show about what that's like to put such raw emotion out there like that and to relive it for an audience, perhaps um, uh, if they're a performer or if they've written something that's emotional for them? Have you talked to anybody about how they're uh, uh, the dealing with that, you know, the idea of being so exposed. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, from what I understand, a very fine line of feeling, you know, that you need to get your voice out and you need to respond, but you don't want to be taken advantage of or kind of used, um, for that topic, right? Yeah. You want to respond genuinely and in your own time, I think a lot of people uh, following the murder of George Floyd and just throughout the pandemic and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, it, there was also a sense of, do I need to respond right this minute? You know, can I take a little bit of time and process how I feel and take care of myself and then say something the way that I want to say it? Um, mm -hmm. I think it's... Um, so important some people want to respond in a crisis immediately and some people really need to take care of their mental health first and mm -hmm. like make sure they're they're okay before they you know address something as huge as that so as we transition into talking about uh your new collaboration with the la phil generally speaking, is composition a part of any of these uh, uh, mental health processes for you? Or is it a, a completely different thing is work over here and and everything else over here? Well, it's that's a good question. It, it's kind of I had to separate them. So so mm. at first it was all just like one big jumble. Um, and I I talked about that in my article with New Music Box that um, you know, I don't know if it's a coincidence that my anxiety arose when I also started writing music, but it, you know, it did. And I started to link the two together in, I think, kind of an unhealthy way where I wanted my, the process of writing music to save me from anxiety, basically. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. wanted to be able to go into this world, you know, with my piano and basically have total control over everything. And that th it was like, this is my world. No one can get in, no one can get out, you know, and that is when you have anxiety, you know, uncertainty and lack of control are huge triggers. Um, 
And of course, you learn quite quickly when you're writing that you don't actually have control. And you, don't <laughs> actually, you know, the creative process is its own being that you're trying to work with. And so um, that's when it became almost in, intolerable to me to write. Um, and it became very difficult because if I had high anxiety, you know, for personal reasons, I wouldn't want to write. And then not writing would not give me the release that I needed. So the anxiety would get higher. Mm. And then I would avoid writing even more. And it became this sort of cycle. And then I would procrastinate. And then the deadline would come closer. And then I'd get more freaked out, you know. And um, when I was writing my viola concerto for the New York Philharmonic, um, when I was 26, that's actually when I went up on my medication because I was just, the pressure of it was so much for me mm. that it just became so clear that I, I needed more help. I was already on like a certain low dose, but then I went up. Um, and so I had to, um, you know, kind of through therapy, like really understand, okay, how, how are you going to take care of your anxiety outside of your writing world? And now I'm sort of able to bring them back together in a little bit of a healthier way. But there was a very severe period of decoupling those ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we as we get closer to the premiere of your uh, violin concerto, I'm, I'm online reading program notes and I couldn't help but to uh, think of you know, something that a lot of composers have been putting on my radar lately, the idea of program notes forming an idea around the music that, uh, you know, may preclude an audience member having their own thoughts or their, their own ideas. I can definitely speak to the importance of program notes. Scott certainly can as a, as a, a radio host. I wonder why you considered them an important part of the work, the experience, or, or are program notes important in your opinion? They're very important. And I think... Um, Testify. <laughs> yes, I love program notes. Um, I spend a lot of time writing them. I also think titles are very important. Okay. And I spend a lot of time thinking about my titles. And the idea is that it is a way of letting the audience in. And I really do want my music to be accessible to people who are not necessarily, you know, versed in classical music. And and so the way I think to do one of the ways I can do that, um, you know, just as the composer is to give just an image that they can grasp onto or some kind of through line. But I, I usually really am thinking about imagery um, because everyone can imagine, you know, this what this piece is called woven loom silver spindle. And so to me, that's it's like clear and not clear. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of um listen for that kind of spinning motion or the silvery you know glint in the in sort of the high percussion but it doesn't tell you how to feel and that's also very important to me i don't want my audience to to be listening for certain emotions or think that they have to have a certain emotional experience in order to get the piece yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned title along with program notes, because uh, when I saw the title Woven Loom Silver Spindle, I was like, oh, OK, so this isn't just violin concerto number one or or whatever. How, how did how did you get to uh, looms and spindles? What 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 sent you in that direction in writing this piece? Well, so it's it's a little bit of a backwards process, but um, I always have imagery when I'm writing. Um, so 
to me that just kind of helps me ground my emotional narrative that I want to tell with certain imagery. And then that imagery is not necessarily the imagery that informs the title of the piece or the program notes. It's actually usually something else. Um, so for this piece, I had just sort of basic kind of flower imagery and water and dewdrops and um, that to me had emotional meaning, but I didn't feel like it would be a great title. Like I didn't, I, I, I don't know, I just sort of, <laughs> um, I, I, and then I think as I learn more about the movement of the piece and the, the musical gestures of the piece, then a secondary image comes to mind that I think captures it more succinctly. Mm -hmm. um, so that image is hardly ever the one that I start out with. But then looking back, you can hear it throughout the piece. Yeah, that's that's interesting. One one of the other things I noticed that was uh, really unique to me was uh, the instrumentation of this piece. I, I always appreciate seeing uh, the contrabassoon getting a chance to participate in the concertos. You know, the third bassoon contrabassoon players around the country. You know, usually sit backstage during the concerto because there isn't a part. So I appreciate that. But you also have a Chinese symbol, cratales, bamboo wind chimes. I mean, where, <laughs> to talk to me about these instruments, particularly in the percussion that we don't hear from all the time, but you thought was important, you know, would be an important part of this piece. Sure. I, I love percussion. I also love the contrabassoon. I use it in every piece. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> we ought to make you carry one up the stairs. Maybe that changed your mind a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I write for percussion, I'm often thinking about kind of, um, like there's sort of three categories and I really like this idea of sort of like insect sounds, um, like sort of fluttering. Um, so that's where the bamboo wind chimes come in. There's sort of like a, or like a, a sand, what a sand blocks, mm -hmm. you know, kabasa, just these sort of like, like these kind of, yeah. um, like if you think of like the idea of stepping on, on leaves, like walking on leaves and, these kind of small nature noises are the kinds of things that I like to evoke. And then there's also usually, you know, a drum kind of section. And then there's like the silver section, which would include the, the Chinese symbols. And I think I bow them maybe, um, but just to, it has a great harmonic spectrum. Um, but yeah, there's usually some kind of, silvery high you know glockenspiel crotales whatever that is and and i try to kind of make like a large instrument out of the small instruments so mm -hmm. that they put together so it's kind of like an you know a, an amalgamation of of instruments into one voice it's one thing for uh an, a musician uh, percussionists in this case to look at the sheet music and see oh uh, mezzo piano I'll play it like this x y and z but as you're describing the sound of walking on leaves I think that's just a, a much clearer image of you know if I were got those instructions that would be a much clearer image to me as to how I should play than yeah. what what might be on the page to that 
I wonder, and I, as we record this, I know that the uh, orchestra rehearsal process hasn't uh, started for this piece, but uh, maybe in, in your past experiences with commissions, how um, involved are you in that rehearsal uh, process, the creative process of taking the notes off the page? Is, is that something that you want to be involved in? Do you want to just show up to the concert and see what happens? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about writing concerti is that you get to work with the soloist. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more of a back and forth than you get in an orchestra commission where you really just show up the week of and then there's a couple of rehearsals and then they do it. Um, but, you know, with with uh, this violin concerto, I've been writing for Martin Chalifour, who's the concert master of the L.A. Philharmonic. And it's it's been great. I mean... I will just send him drafts and then he sends me back recordings and he makes suggestions. And sometimes, you know, he's like, oh, can I do this? You know, can I do this in the piece? Can you fit this in? Um, and that is really fun because I really love collaborating. And that's one of, um, you know, maybe the harder parts of orchestral writing is you don't really get to collaborate generally. Mm. But yeah. Is, is the answer ever no? No, you may not do this. Actually, this is what I wrote down on the page. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, I, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with musicians who respect that and, you know, will be clear like, well, I can't do this because it's not idiomatic. Or maybe can we change this slightly to get the idea you're going for, but I can't do that fingering. You know, then, yes, we have to make changes. But... um. Yeah, I can't help but to think about that. I guess it was Beethoven, that Beethoven quote. Do you think I give a damn about your little fiddle when the muse visits me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Describe to me the feeling of hearing this music for the first time. It's one thing to, you know, use our computer software and sort of get that sound, but hear it, hearing it realized. What, what is that feeling like? That, that must be an incredible sensation. It's kind of an out of body experience. Um, it's it's especially when you when you work for months on mm -hmm. you know, or years on a project and then you hear it, you know, in, with real instruments in a huge hall. It's it's um quite surreal. Yeah. Hmm. Sort of like I have to remind myself to focus, you know, because yeah. you don't get a lot of time. So you really need to concentrate and and listen for the mistakes or the things you want to change. Um, but it's hard to not just kind of be like overcome with kind of shock of yeah <laughs> yeah especially if you've got some anxiety surrounding it. I can tell you when my first full length play premiered, yeah. I sat out in that audience. I think I might have taken three breaths, mm -hmm. you know, in an hour and a half. Does that happen for you? Is it so? Okay, how about this? Real talk. Uh, you've got a premiere coming up. What's your anxiety level like now? Or have is it gone since you've already handed it off? Well, it's different now because, um, you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to actually have, you know, so this is my second premiere with the L.A. Philharmonic um, mm. and I've had, you know, other orchestral premieres. So the anxiety is not as huge as it used to be. Um, you know, my first commission with the New York Philharmonic, um, I didn't sleep for about two weeks. <laughs> I mean, wow. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was just, it was adrenaline, fear, like 
the out of body experience is also an anxiety symptom. I mean, you can experience it in a nice, you know, pleasurable way, but it's also that state of um, dissociation where like you feel like you're 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 looking down at yourself. Um, that's an anxiety thing. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll creep up as as we get there, probably before the first rehearsal. But um, yeah, it used to be nonstop, no sleeping, just high, high hyper vigilance, high alert. And then I would crash, you know, after. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness. Yep. <laughs> I, I like to make comparisons between music and food. So, so follow me here for a second. A lot of people think it's a little uh, woo woo, but I believe that you can taste the love someone puts into making something. When I visit my mom, I can taste that, that, that uh-huh. essence. So comparing that uh, to music, it's one thing to write the dots on the, on the, on the staves. Is there a a feeling that goes into it? How how does the emotion of the music play a role in the composition of the music? Yeah. Um, so when I'm starting out with the piece, um, I have an idea of an emotional contrast or story or problem that I'm trying to work through with the piece. And it's something personal to me. And it's something that I don't share publicly because Mm. it's not really about that ultimately that's just my way into the piece um so what i do when i'm sketching is i actually sing because i'm i'm a singer and um that's my primary instrument and so i will kind of be overcome with emotion and then i will put on a recorder i was going to say tape recorder but not a tape recorder (laughs) (laughs) you know, record on my computer and um, just start singing and making noise and um, or, you know, I'll I'll speak some kind of rhythm um, and then, you know, then I'll turn off the recorder and then the next day I'll come and I'll start writing it down, you know, taking it apart. So there's sort of like a more raw expression and then there's the um, more analytical um moment and then you just kind of move back and forth between those two stages yeah wow that's that's really interesting to me when, when we uh as when we step back from this premiere um specifically and just the general uh work of getting an orchestral commission you know i speak with lots of composers who consider it nearly impossible for that to happen to reach that point in their career i, I wonder you know what your thoughts are on breaking through is it all about getting that first commission does it get easier after that what are your thoughts there yeah it's it's very hard i mean i the way i was able to start was you know really the the only way that i really know how which is through competition Mm. Um, and so you know my premiere with the new york philharmonic which was my my first commission um i was still in grad school and it came from the earshot readings um you know which is a program of american composers orchestra and um it happens multiple times a year and i think a lot of young composers do get a break through that program. And now, you know, that program is developing out and my commission specifically, you know, the the funding came from the Toolman Foundation, which supports female composers. So, you know, I, I don't know though, if if you don't get in, you don't, if you're not submitting to competitions or if you're past a certain age, I think it's easier 
when you are a young emerging composer, right? When you're in your 20s, basically, to kind of ride those, that wave of opportunities that are out there, um, you know, through blind submissions. Um, but after that, it becomes a lot harder. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other way of, so I kind of had two things I was doing, I was applying, but then I was also working at LA Opera. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like that's another route to go is to actually work for now, you know, not as a composer, um, for a large institution and get, try to get to know people that way. Um, but basically, you know, once I won this competition, then I had a, then I received a commission from James Conlon, um, who was my boss at LA opera. And I was just an intern there, you know? And, um, so it, it's, a, it's often a combination of, of things, but it's, it's very hard. You know, I think I've, I really lucked out with this competition. Um, and I think it gets harder, the older you get, probably. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of conversation online about that very word emerging, you know, what does it even mean to be emerging, uh, that it's just another barrier, another obstacle. I mean, because if Scott decides to write a piece of music today, or if I decide to, you know, we're emerging, we, we aren't 22 years old, but that doesn't mean we aren't emerging composers. Right. The other place that my mind goes, uh, when you're, you know, talking about breaking through again, I have to go back uh, to the food uh, analogies. <laughs> Are if, you hungry? I must be. <laughs> I must be. If I bake, let's say, if if I bake a cake for um, the state fair, you know, for a competition, I feel like even if the recipe is exactly the same, it's going to taste different if I bake this cake for my grandma who's in the hospital or for my friends who are, who are coming over, does, does uh, composing in a competitive uh, setting not have an impact on the, on the outcome in, mm -hmm. you know, in your opinion or experience? I, I always make it personal, so I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, so it sounds I like you're just able to, to separate the fact that, you know, something is for a competition in your process. You're writing this thing and it happens to be uh, something that's set against all of these other, you know, pieces of music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because ultimately you have to write for yourself. Mm. You have to write for the people you love and on about the topics you care about and, you know, then get it out into the world. But but try to not let be thinking about what other people want or expect when you're actually in the creative process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, for folks who aren't in Los Angeles and can't be at Disney Hall on uh, <laughs> on December 3rd, will they have an opportunity or do they have an opportunity to uh, check out this premiere? I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a live stream or anything like that, you know, and it's hard to get recordings from orchestras because mm. of. Yeah. Um, so I, I honestly don't, <laughs> I guess we'll have to circle back around to that, but, but how can, how can folks, uh, learn more about you or, or maybe hear some of them of your music that has been recorded? Yes. Um, well, the New York Philharmonic released the recording of my viola concerto with Cynthia Phelps on their soloists of New York Philharmonic album which is on youtube and um everywhere that you can find albums and then my um my own website uh has all of my music 
all all that I can share for free is up there, basically. Okay. Oh, great, great. Well, you know, my my final question for you. So, uh, my advocacy for composers and music creators has always centered giving light to the marginalized, um, as well as the living composers. I just sort of see that um, as my purpose with the work that I do here and there being a part of that bigger purpose. I wonder if your work as a composer is a part of of something greater for you. Something greater for me or as a part of the same mission that you are pursuing? Oh, no, something greater for you personally. Well, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think that Loose Leaf Notebook and, you know, part of why I wanted to start this podcast is because I, I felt like I needed to to be part of something that was greater than me in a way that my music maybe is not. I mean, I, I believe that it's important to create and be an artist. And I think that that makes us kinder humans and it, it, it makes us human, you know, that we're sensitive and, and um, we want to connect through creation and imagination. Um, but sometimes that's not enough. And um, I think a lot of us have felt that strongly recently, um, you know, during 2020. And um, so for me, the, you know, creating Loose Leaf Notebook and sort of talking openly about mental health and, and talking with other people about their own struggles um, and, and, and the challenges of just being an artist and a person <laughs> today, um to me that's a way of being a part of something bigger and and somehow the having those two separate outlets has made me feel more whole and like i'm doing what i what i meant to be doing than just doing one or the other That's the end of a Julia Adolph composition called Embracing Mist. It's a part of a larger work called Unearth Release. Just one of the many examples of Julia Adolph's really incredible work on the compositional front as well as on the mental health front. So if you're in the L.A. area, uh, go please support. Go check out her world premiere that's happening this Friday, December 3rd. Be sure to check out Loose Leaf Notebook and do everything you can to support new music by living composers huge shout out and thank you to julia adolph for joining us here on triloquy all right we like to uh, trill our way into the uh, final movement uh on this podcast i'm gonna i'm gonna fudge that definition just a little bit there's sort of some vocal trills in um this this, this tune that we're gonna uh use to get into it so let's listen to a little bit here
Delirium, delirium, or whatever they're doing. That counts as a trill. I love a vocal it. trill. <laughs> do, do, do you have a, a favorite? That, that's one of my favorite from the Vince Guaraldi Trio Christmas album. Do, do you have an even more favorite than that? Uh, the Christmas song. Yeah. I can't Christmas sing. Time. Yeah, I can't sing now, quite up there. But. I don't want it. I don't want it with the kid choir. I just want the trio doing it. Oh, okay. You don't need the children's choir. I don't. The children's ensemble. I don't. <laughs> anyway, shout out to uh, Vince Guaraldi and uh, the Vince Guaraldi trio. All right, we're here in the final movement. We're in the triloquy movement where we really keep it true and real and and just speak to to, to what we're speaking to. Um, I'll I'll quickly say, Scott. I talked about the Macy's parade in the first movement. One of the big things that they were pushing at the Macy's Day parade was the a new production of Annie, the Black Annie, Blanny. I don't need it. I don't need it. I do not need it. I feel like there are so many more stories to tell, and platforming the Black Annie is a way to say, look. We're being inclusive. We're not racist. What are you talking about? And in turn, it makes everyone watching who knows this age old played out tale, no shade but shade of Annie, make them feel like, look, I'm a good person. I sat down and watched a little black girl play Annie and Taraji P. Henson do such and such. And um, Harry Connick Jr. is is in it. And I, I, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. I, you know, he's he's one of the accompli- one of the musical accomplices. If any white person has platformed black music, it's been him. You mm-hmm. know, so uh, but with, with all of that said, I don't I don't need the black Annie. I, you know, shout out to everyone who's involved. Uh, I feel like there are other stories to tell, and I feel like this is just a way to sidestep some real equity for the sake of of doing the safe route. You think I'm stretching, or or are you going to uh, set your uh, clock and sit in front of the TV for Blanny? Look, I just, I just, <laughs> I'm gonna told title you, this Opus Blanny. <laughs> I just told you I didn't want to hear the version of a Christmas song yep. with the kids' choir in uh-huh. it. Why would I sit through a whole musical of that? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not trying to. Okay, go ahead. So th- 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 these opinions are mine. Yep, and they are just that. But what I would say, and I can, I what I would say, I can hear what you would say back. If I'm going to try to find a, a positive way to spin this, is what if a young black child mm-hmm. saw that and thought maybe they could be in a musical? Yeah. Now, I know that you would probably come back and say, there are black stories that will inspire that. Yes, exactly. Okay, so uh, I'm at a loss as to how to advocate for it. So that, I, I just don't. So that how. means for me, two things can be true at the same time. I can root for uh, the, the cast of Black Annie, because I refuse to not call it that. <laughs> I, can, I can root for the cast of Blanny and maybe even when in my best of moods, consider that a step in the right direction when it comes to diversity, when it comes to equity, that can be true. And I can say it would be more impactful to have an actual black story if you're trying to engage something black. It's not like the person who won uh, the audition. Let me let me. Uh, Look up her name. Hold on. So uh, for me, I guess what it's all coming back to is who's it for? Right? Selena Smith, 12-year-old Selena Smith. So shout out and congratulations to her. I don't think she happened to be black. I, but based on the cast, based on um, the the treatment in the promos and the bumpers I've seen, they have been intentionally trying to put on a black Annie. So Congratulations to all the Taraji B. Henson, everybody, Selena, and we need black stories. 
This isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about equity. We're not talking about the all black magic flute. We're not talking about the black Annie. We're not talking about the black versions of this age old, excuse me, this age old repeated after repeated after repeated um, white art and white storytelling on these stages. We're talking about black stories, BIPOC, divert, indigenous stories, um, uh, Latin stories being put on these stages. We aren't talking about the the shaded version the remix of this stuff so that, that that's my quick point number one shout, shout out to everybody i'm not watching blanny because i think we need to go <laughs> a step further okay for uh my my second and, and and final triloquy scott i wanted to loop back around to what we were talking about in the triloquy last week you asked the question you know is it is it something to be thought about as far as white folks uh, ruining or, or putting a bad light on things like the Black Lives Matter movement, on things like equity in the arts. And my you know, basic response to that was you can't uh, make it bad because at the end of the day, you're thinking about the white perception of it when you ask those questions. Right. Right. And thinking about and chewing on our conversation uh, last week, all week, I returned back uh, to an interview that featured um, Sister Soldier. This is from uh, from from years ago. It doesn't say the year here, but I'll I'll put it in the description anyway. Sister Soldier is basically asked um, to clarify her statements on I've never seen or never met any good white people. Let, let let's be reminded of what Sister Soldier um, said. I said in the beginning of my slavery video that I hadn't met any good white people, and my definition of good is that you understand that this is a question of power that you'll be willing to give up some power, that you'll be willing to give up some resources, that you'll be willing to pay black people reparations for our, hunt, our years and years of service in this country, uh, that you'll be willing to go home and tell your white mother and father about white racism and how it affects and kills black people in our communities. That's my definition of good white people, and I haven't met any like that. Speaking okay. Of power, how about Sister Soldier did not say the person who goes to the protest for the photo op. It did not say the person who makes this social media post so that people can see them as someone who is anti-racist or not racist. Sister Soldier was talking to power dynamics and actually putting mm -hmm. something on the line. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looping th that back around because I wasn't sure if I was clear last week. I'm not saying that white folks shouldn't go to the protest. White folks shouldn't be platforming black music or doing doing everything they can within their institutions, arts institutions or otherwise to flip this conversation. But that doesn't just inherently and objectively make you good. So asking the question, should I be in this space? Should I perform this piece of music? Should I go to this protest or, or this uh, demonstration or whatever? That's not the question to be asked. The question to be asked is what impact can you have as someone who is not black, as a, uh, someone who is not a, a person of color? Where can your uh, actions have the most measurable reverberations toward anti-racism mm -hmm. and all of those things? Sister Soldiers, uh, you know, so again, in her definition of the of the good white person, as she says, she says she never met anybody with with those um, uh, with with those qualities. My question to you: Have you? Have you met a white person with those qualities? Have you met a good white person, as Sister Soldier has has uh, laid out and defined by there. her by her definition and her description i know people who have a lot of those qualities yeah and i don't not. think and i don't think she she's saying you have to check off all of these boxes because right. it's easy for right. us to get in you know get get into that trap as well but basically she's talking about someone who will put something 
on the line. You sit here week after week and open yourself up to so many emotions, what folks gonna send in your inbox, whether it's black folks saying something, whether it's white folks saying something, the ones calling you an apologist or whatever, you are you are putting all of that out here and, and you know, in the process, standing by alongside me and my work, working for an institution that kicked me out and didn't want my work over in there. You are putting something on the line. So when, pe so when people come to you asking questions like, oh, well, should I be at this protest or don't you think white people could mess it up if X, Y, and Z? Do you not find yourself frustrated with them in the same way that I, I, you know, often feel frustrated with that narrative and that and, and that sort of thing? You're putting something on the line while they're asking you these basic ass questions. Right. But I've got a lot more empathy in, in it than you do. Okay. Because I think I'm closer to where they were. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I don't mess up. Or we do all they, do you know, in some way. I, that, I get pronouns wrong sometimes. Yeah. I, I always have to correct myself. And, and I think that's the important thing to understand. We all have we all have dust in the corners. We all have things that we we need to fix. But you can't allege to be anti-racist specifically if there's no action. Like I said, last, and I went back and listened to my comments just to you know, make sure I was making some sense. Mm -hmm. Anti-racism is not a feeling. It's not a, a state of being. It's action. It's action. It's doing things. And if you can't point to things that you're doing, that means you're doing nothing, which means you're you're working against me. You're 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 not my not even my ally. You're my opposition. Yeah, there's there are some places where I think that I would get uptight with some people. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I, I feel like I can scold people who don't read their headline out loud before they press publish mm -hmm. because I've done that. And I've we all have. and I've felt the backlash, right? And I feel like I can tell people to look at, acknowledge, and deal with your privilege because uh, I did it in front of God and everybody in Opus 8. <laughs> Way back so, when. So <laughs> uh, there, there are certain places where I feel like I can stand up and, and point out the dust in somebody else's corners. The, the most important thing that I've learned is that I need to learn and keep my mouth shut. Sure. <laughs> you know, not brag about what I just discovered or what I just found or anything. Because though because those things don't deserve a badge of honor. Those things no, no, are no, the baseline. No, no, no. no. That's those, the baseline. Those are the things that you want to put a sticky note next to and say, do not repeat. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's listen. Just a, a, as we close, let's listen to what she said one more time. This is a question of power, that you'll be willing to give up some power, that you'll be willing to give up some resources, that you'll be willing to pay black people reparations for our, hunt, our years and years of service in this country, uh, that you'd be willing to go home and tell your white mother and father about white racism and how it affects and kills black people in our communities. That's my definition of good white people, and I haven't met any like that. Unlike Sister Soldier, I have had the privilege of meeting a few white people like that. But to those of you listening who happen to be white, do you have any of those characteristics that she laid out? Are you willing to lay something measurable on the line, something that you can lose for the sake of anti-racism? Are you willing to go home and tell Meemaw and Peepaw to stop using the word oriental or whatever negative problematic language they're using. Do any of those things apply to you or not? There's no middle ground. See y'all next week.